0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Begin with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're ready to study the Word in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us. Above all, we're thankful that you loved us in such a way that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, and that we have an eternal salvation, not based on who we are, what we do, but on who he is and what he's done for us. And Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word and that it is absolute sufficient truth. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that we may be able to see the patterns of your grace and love in history, the patterns of your character that are revealed in history. And, Father, that we may gain a greater appreciation of how you have worked in and through uh, many, many different uh, situations and people and historical circumstances to bring about our salvation and to ultimately bring about the deliverance of the world from evil. So, Father, we pray that as we study these things tonight that our spiritual life may be strengthened and encouraged as we see how you work, even when your name is not specifically mentioned in the Scriptures as uh, as being involved in the actions that are going on. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in First Kings. I don't think we'll make 1-1 today. Still background. We've gone through two lessons of background, but as I got into the things that were happening in the first two chapters of 1 Kings related to the succession of the throne in Israel and how that's related to, of course, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, plus other things that are going on within this chapter and subsequent chapters, I thought it was it would do all of us a little good to have some review in a few of these areas. Just by way of introduction, when the writer of Kings writes this history, there are <clears throat> different purposes that he has in mind. One purpose that he has in mind is to complete the narrative, the story that was begun in 1 Samuel, the story of the United Kingdom the story of the development of the monarchy for Saul, then then David, to work out the completion of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, He is uh, also going to show how the promise that's laid out earlier, the desire of David to build a temple for God, is finally um, realized in uh, his son Solomon. A second reason that he's writing, and this has to do with a theological purpose, a spiritual life purpose, is he wants to show the patterns of sin and divine discipline and juxtapose those with the patterns of obedience and grace in the history of Israel to deter later generations from disobedience to God. And you see these patterns work themselves out uh, mostly in, in this, in, in, beginning with Solomon and the subsequent kings, especially Israel, for disobedience. And in the southern kingdom, uh, you have some, some obedience among the kings, but not, uh, it's not uh, consistent. Third, he wants to explain the outworkings of the Mosaic covenant, showing God's faithfulness to his covenant and showing how. Uh, the promises of God in Deuteronomy 28 to 30 and Leviticus 26 are worked out historically. That God has, even though God is disciplining the, the nation, He promised that that's what He would do. He is fulfilling His promise. God's faithful to His covenant. And if He's been faithful in His discipline and judgment, He will also be faithful in His grace and blessing in bring, restoring the people to the nation. Remember, Kings is written and finalized during the time of the Babylonian captivity when both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are out of the land and they are in the diaspora. And then the fourth purpose is he's showing that the, that uh, you have the continuous failure of the bad kings and even among the good kings there is marked Failure showing that none of these kings fit the pattern of the ideal perfect king that is promised and prophesied in the Davidic covenant. And of course, only the Messiah uh, will fulfill that. So there's a messianic theme in his uh, analysis of history. Now, as we get into the first couple of chapters, this is the first division. In uh, 1 Kings 1 through 11, deals with the um, reign of Solomon. The first chapter and a half focuses on the transfer of the kingdom from David to Solomon. So I would call the first section from 1 Kings 1 through 11 God provides for the transition of the kingship from David to Solomon in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's what these first 11 chapters focus on. And I try to structure my outlines when I outline a book. I try to structure them, and in, in, especially in narrative sections, where at least the major headings all have God as the subject. Because in the narrative of the Old Testament, God is the hero. God is the one ultimately acting behind the scenes and bringing things out the way they are. So it's not just a matter of the fact that there's a transition of kingship, but we see God at work. Even though God is not mentioned in this chapter and a half, you can't read the chapter and a half without thinking about the Davidic covenant that lies behind everything that's going on there. And we see how God works through people and through circumstances to still bring about his will despite uh, human opposition. So the first 11 chapters, we see God providing for the transition from David to Solomon, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The first part of that is that uh, God provides for the transfer of the kingdom from David to Solomon from 1-1 to 2:12, And this is a dramatic section of Scripture. You should read it and think of it as, as a play or a drama on TV. It just moves from one scene to another, and it happens over a very short time. Now, not the first part of it. The first four verses... We get into the situation where David is older. He's a bit senile. He's not on top of his game. Uh, down to the end of the chapter, we don't see David as the subject of an active voice verb. He's very passive. He's old. He's not engaged. He is, uh, he's in, he's lost his health. His body can't, uh, generate enough warmth. And so the first four verses, we have the provision of Abishag to provide warmth for the king. And in the midst of that, we discover that there's a coup. And by the fifth verse, we're introduced to the coup from Adonijah, who seeks to secure the throne for himself, and how Nathan and Bathsheba then come in to make the king aware. And all of a sudden, we see David just sort of wake up. And, and it's interesting how they put their questions and how they they design and think about how they're going to present their case to the king and it catches his attention and we see just a spark of his old uh, leadership ability and focus as he immediately realizes what's happening and as they come to realize when they come into the throne room to make David aware of what Adonijah is doing at that moment Adonijah's got half the city of Jerusalem out as he is being crowned king. And so David knows that they have to move rapidly. And all these events from verse 5 down to the end of the chapter take place within a very short period of time. Bathsheba and Nathan have to come in and inform David. They have to suddenly uh, rally their forces, find Solomon, get him out, uh, anoint him as king, and create all the pageantry that that surrounds that while Adonijah already has a head start on them, and they have to do that in such a way as to uh, just wipe out any hope that Adonijah has to sit on the throne. So it's a fast-paced situation with a tremendous amount uh, of tension going on there as Adonijah seeks to grab power, seize the throne, uh, seize the succession away from Solomon, who is the divinely uh, ordained successor to David. Now, as we get into this section and one of the things I want to keep pointing out as we go through our sort of opening survey of first Kings is the major doctrines that need to be brought out. Remember, part of the reason I'm doing this is so that uh, parents or prep and prep school teachers can have some idea of how to communicate this, uh, these events to their children. And there's three, uh, three central doctrines that form a backdrop to the first chapter and a half. The first has to do with the promise of God. And the promise of God here is anchored in the Davidic covenant. So you have to understand the Davidic covenant and the promises God made to David in that context so that you can understand that what David is doing when he uh, re- when he realizes what's happening and he begins to give orders as to the uh, anointing of Solomon as king, that he is doing that in response and in reliance upon the promise of God, otherwise known as the faith rest drill. And that's what he's doing. He knows what God has promised and he's re- relying upon that. And so he takes uh, the appropriate action. Second thing we see that's a very important doctrine is the guidance of God behind the scenes? That God is at work behind the scenes in order to stop this uh, coup by Adonijah. How uh, how Nathan found out about the. Uh, uh, attempted coup and how he comes to Bathsheba and how they approach the king and we just see God working behind the scenes. We get this idea sometimes that God is always overt and out front in the Old Testament but here we see that he is a God who works through the circumstances and behind the scenes and his name really isn't mentioned as directly engaged in in any of these events. He's not coming in and saying... Um, David, if you want to know what the best thing to do is, this is what you need to do. Nathan doesn't come in and say, thus saith the Lord. David is simply reminded of what has happened and what is going on. And David then applies the word to the situation. Third thing is the faithfulness of God. Very important that we'll see again and again throughout uh, the book of Kings, first and second that God is faithful to his covenant promises in the Mosaic Covenant, both to bless and to curse, both to uh, provide gracious blessing and to provide judgment. So the first place to start is going to be in the Mosaic Covenant. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses parting message his last sermon his farewell address to the israelites on the plains of moab as they are about to cross over the jordan under the generalship of joshua and enter into the land that god has promised them and so as part of his final final address to them he reminds them of the stipulations of the Mosaic Law, and he rehearses and summarizes the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy. When he comes to the end, he reminds them that the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant that includes both promises of blessing and promises of cursing, promises of grace, promises of judgment, dependent upon what they do. And if you look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1... We read, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And when I read that, I can't help but think of Isaiah chapter 2, which is a millennial kingdom passage, where God promises Israel that in the future, when the kingdom comes, that all the nations will come to them and all will worship at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So this ultimately isn't going to be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. But the reason it wasn't fulfilled in the Old Testament is because they failed to be obedient to the commandments. And the one of the key words here is the word uh, diligently obey. It is a uh, <clears throat> compound of the same verb, it's it's stated twice the first time it's a cal infinitive absolute second time it's a cal imperfect it's the same kind of construction that we have in genesis two seventeen when god says in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die you have the same thing there related to death you have the the verb is in the cal infinitive absolute and then it's repeated as a cal uh, cal imperfect and in hebrew idiom That is a stress, that's bold-faced type that means this is certainly definitely going to happen. So in this sense, in Deuteronomy 28, if you are definitely, if you are diligently, is a good translation, if you diligently obey, if you are consistently obedient uh, to the voice of the Lord your God, which of course is not audible, but that which is contained in the written revelation of God in the Mosaic Law. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. If you are obedient, God will bless you and raise you up above all the nations. And then in verse 2 we read, And all these blessings shall come upon you. So let's just, I'm going to summarize the blessings under nine points and the cursings under ten points. The condition for mosaic covenant blessing was diligent obedience. They needed to be careful to obey all of the law. And this has to do with civil law as well as religious law, that which related to their spiritual life, the ceremonial law, of the uh, of the tabernacle slash temple. Second, the result of that would be that all these blessings would come to them. God would prosper them, and these blessings. And if you read these, you may end up being a health and wealth, uh, prosperity gospel person, go down the street to uh, uh, the old summit, go down to Lakewood and visit visit uh, Joel. I don't know if anybody saw 60 Minutes the other night, but I thought they were going to crown him America's pastor. I just couldn't believe it. And the guy wouldn't know the gospel. They had one, one guy who came out and had a good evaluation of him said it's a cotton candy gospel. It's not even a gospel. It's just cotton candy anyway. But the, problem is, and that, but the problem is that when people who don't know biblical hermeneutics go in and read their neighbor's mail, this is our neighbor, these are the Jews, they're separate from the church, this is addressed to Israel, not the church. You go read your neighbor's mail, you're going to end up paying your neighbor's bills and if there's anything good coming to your neighbor, you're going to be stealing his stuff, but you're not going to be getting and doing what's expected of you. And that's exactly what, what happens. In the Old Testament, because they, I believe that because they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they don't have a completed canon of scripture, they have an incomplete spiritual life, an incomplete canon of scripture, all these things, that God deals with them in very concrete, measurable manner so that it's, it's easy to put a barometer on their spirituality. And so there, it's an agricultural society, and so it's easy to just go out on a monthly basis and or quarterly basis and, and look at what's going on in your bank account, and you can determine whether or not you're, you're really uh, obeying God. If you're obeying God, there's going to be prosperity, literal financial prosperity, and prosperity of the nation, the GNP of the nation, the gross national products, are going to be going sky high just because they're obeying God. And what this tells us is that the key causative element in the health of a nation and its economy is not that it has the right economic theory, but that it has the right relationship with God. It's not that it understands has the right political system, but that it has the right relationship with God and is obedient to his word. The spiritual element is the causative element in history, not all these other things that people, that people come up with. And so the result is if they're obedient to the Lord, then the Lord will set them above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon them. Third point, the blessings are enumerated between verse 3 and verse 9. The blessings are enumerated. And they're, they're set up in, in, in what's in figure of speech, is called a merism. A merism is when you talk about opposites. For example, uh, I work, you know, night and day on something. Well, what you're saying is you're using the two opposites, night and day, to, to express in a figure of speech that you just worked continuously on something. Uh, the Bible says much the same thing when it talks about the fact that we should meditate on God's word day and night, when God created the heavens and the earth. See, these are opposites, but together they they represent a totality. So you have the fact that, that if they are obedient to the Lord, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed will you be in the country. Where else is there? Outer space. No, it's not mentioned. Um, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. It's inclusive. So that if they're obedient to the Lord, the blessings affect... Everyone in the nation, rural and urban, their productivity in terms of their own uh, fertility, in terms of population growth, they'll be blessed, they'll be blessed in their labor, they'll be blessed in agriculture, all their livestock will be uh, fertile and productive. And this was a major issue in the ancient world. What was the competing religion that we're going to have to deal with in kings Is, is the Baal worship. And that goes back all the way to Babylon, the fertility worship. And all of the things that were related to the pagan fertility gods and goddesses, this was a major issue. It's just the, it's just the primitive version of Lakewood. That's what ba- Baalism is. It's just the primitive version of the health and wealth gospel. You know, God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy, so let's go down and, you know, fornicate with the idols. So the blessings are enumerated in verses uh, 3 through 8. Fourth, the purpose for this is stated in verse 10. It is a t- visible testimony. In the Old Testament, the Jews weren't sent weren't the people of God that were to be sent to all the nations. They were to live in a test case environment where if they were obedient to God, God would bless them far beyond any other people, any other nation in the world, and people who came there would just be in awe of their prosperity and of their wealth and their freedom and their liberty, which they would have by obeying the word, and they would take it back to their to their nation saying, you won't believe what the God of the Jews is doing. There's no God like that God. Very visible, very concrete, very uh very visual. So verse ten says, Then all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you in verse eleven, um I did have that up there in verse verse eleven, the Lord will grant you uh, plenty of goods, the fruit of your body, the increase of your livestock, the produce of your ground. It's it's physical, material, financial prosperity. So the fourth point is that the purpose is that they will be established as God's holy people. The fifth point is that the blessings are to be a visible evidence to all the nations. This is their testimony uh, to the world of God's grace. Sixth, there will be an abundance of fertility in offspring, produce, livestock. And that's stated in verse verse 12 and then seventh, There will be an abundance of rain and sun. This is this is important in um, verse 12. The Lord will open to you his good treasure the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. They're, they're going to be so wealthy, they won't have any need to rely on foreign aid from anybody else. They will be the ones who will be lending to others. But I want you to notice that first phrase. The Lord will... Open to you as good treasure to the heavens to give rain. What happens in 1, Corinthians 7, 1 Kings 17? Elijah comes to Ahab, and what does he say? It's not going to rain for three and a half years. Now, that command of Elijah, or that that statement by Elijah to, to Ahab that it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years, doesn't come out of the blue. It That is... He is, as a prophet, he's prosecuting the, the provisions of the Mosaic law, and he's saying, if you were obedient, there would be rain, but you're disobedient, and the heavens are going to be like, uh, like brass. And that's exactly what is stated in verse uh, 23 and 24 when we get into the uh, curses section. Verse 13 tells us that the blessing is measured in terms of prosperity and fertility again in where I skip it and and the lord will make you the head and not the tail you shall be above only and not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the lord your god which i command you today and are careful to observe them god is going to make you greater than all other nations but then we come to verse 15 and it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice voice of the lord to be careful uh, to observe carefully, and we have the same kind of terminology we have back in verse 1, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. It follows the same pattern. The next verses from 16 down through uh, 24 at least, uh, 25, 26, 27, 28 all outline these curses. They mirror the same ble- the blessings that you have in verses 3 down through, uh, down through 13. Cursed shall you be in the city and curses shall you be in the country. Curses shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curses shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your land, the increase of the cattle, the offspring of the flocks. In other words, everybody in the city and the country is gonna, gonna be under judgment. Uh, everything is going to be judged. You're you're going to go to the store and there won't be the goods you're looking for in the store. There will be a famine. You will go out and no matter what you try to do, your uh, livestock are not going to be reproducing. Your herds are going to shrink. Not only that, but there's going to be Uh, health problems, people are going to have greater sicknesses, uh, greater illnesses, and it's not tied to their diet, folks. Don't, don't buy into any of that. You all, every couple of years, somebody else comes out with a book saying that you can, you too can be healthy and disease free if you just follow the diet of the Jews in the Old Testament. The problem with that is in Acts chapter 10, God declares that it's all clean and Peter didn't get a new cookbook. He didn't get a new book on hygiene. OSHA didn't come along, or the you know Federal Food and Drug Administration didn't come along with new guidelines for keeping food at the right temperature or, or whatever. It's, it was all designed for a spiritual lesson. It wasn't designed to keep them healthy. I don't care how many MDs are after somebody's name. Uh, you, you've got to deal with how the, the Word of God interprets it and not what you're, you dream up in your laboratory. I have to say that because every two or three years, there's always people who come up and say, have you read this book? And the first thing that happens in the preface, some, some doctor says, well, you know, I was sick. He has his long testimony. And then he says, but then I went back to the diet that was in, in the Bible. And I got healthy and cured of cancer. And I could run faster than a speeding bullet and leap tall buildings and all the other things. So, okay, now we get to um, discipline. Ten points. First of all, the condition for discipline is if you do not obey the Lord, if you do not observe all his commandments, these curses will follow. And the curses are the opposite of the blessings. Uh, point number two, the curses are the opposite of the blessings in verses 16 down through 20, and then they're expanded after that from uh, 21 and following. Uh, Verse 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are to possess. Uh, 22, the Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, that's violence, that's criminality in the land. That's not military conquest yet. Uh, With scorching, with mildew, uh, they had their own problem with mold. We're not really sure exactly what that is is but it certainly had had something to do with rot yeah, things would rot in the land uh, verse 23 and your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you shall be iron that's exactly what Elijah is announcing to Ahab in First Kings 17 is there's going to be a drought verse 24 the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed And then there will be military defeat in verse 25. So my uh, third point is that the curse involved a loss of productivity, a loss of fertility, an increase of disease, increase of financial troubles, bankruptcy, debt, and military defeat. Specifically including drought and Military defeat, these are outlined. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. It doesn't matter the quality of your military academies. It doesn't matter the quality of your technology. It doesn't matter how many iron weapons you have. If you're not walking with the Lord, no matter how great your technology is, you're going to be defeated. If you are walking with the Lord, it doesn't matter how poor your technology is, you will defeat your enemies because the ultimate issue is the relationship with God. And they will be defeated in such a way, verse 26, "...that your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away." This was a sign of dishonor that the bodies would just be left out unburied to be uh, ravaged by scavengers we 'll remember this when we get into this episode with the son of Jeroboam I becomes ill, and his prophet comes and 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 uh, or, or actually his wife goes down to a prophet in in Judah disguised to try to find out if the boy's going to live or die, and the announcement is that he's going to die but he's the only one of his brothers and sisters that will go into the grave. Why? Because and all the others would, when Jeroboam was judged, all the sons and daughters would be massacred and their bodies would be just left out in the open to rot. This is a, what I'm trying to point out here is that, so everything you read subsequent to the Mosaic Law ties back to these elements in the Mosaic Law. And what the later writers are doing is showing the faithfulness of God to bless where there's obedience and to judge where there's disobedience in light of the, the legal contract of the Mosaic law. So, uh, fourth point was that these judgments would specifically include drought and military defeat. Fifth, um, it would result in, uh, the military defeat would result in oppression and removal from the land, this is what we see as the fifth cycle or stage of discipline in leviticus twenty six that here would just culminate in removal uh, removal from the land um, so that all the world would see see just as their obedience would yield such productivity and s- such a prosperity that the world would fear God and fear Israel because of it that if they were disobedient, God would judge them so harshly they would be removed from the land that this would also be a testimony to all the nations, and all the nations would uh, treat them with derision and disrespect. They would all see uh, their failure would be uh, before everyone. Sixth point, the spiritual purpose for this is stated in twenty-eight forty-five to 48. The spiritual purpose is restated in twenty-eight, forty-five to 48, that if they don't obey, all of these curses will overtake them. And they will be, in verse 46, they will be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Seventh point, they're told that a foreign enemy will come whose language they will not understand. A foreign enemy would come, and uh, speak a language they didn't understand. Verse 49, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation whose uh, a fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. This is the background for the tongues passage in Isaiah, talking about the fact that when that they would hear Uh, people speaking in languages they didn't know. It would be a sign of conquest, that they were being disciplined. And that's the same passage that's picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to state the purpose for the gift of tongues. It wasn't to evangelize. That wasn't it. I don't know how many people have promoted that myth. The fact that it happened, that they heard the word of God taught in in languages other than Hebrew, was a sign that God was about to judge them and take them out of the land it didn't have to do with you know all these other things people come up with that have these high spiritual uh motives that was for witnessing or teaching the word or mission that wasn't it when paul quotes isaiah he is he is showing that the purpose for tongues the fact that the Jews would hear revelatory information in Gentile languages was a sign that God was judging Israel and they were about to be taken out of the land. And so that's why it was a sign of judgment. That's why once they're out of, taken out of the land in 70 A.D., the, that purpose for tongues is gone and so speaking in lang, uh, Gentile languages is no longer relevant. It dies out. Eighth point, the result is that they would be left few in number. And last year, about this time, we went through our study on Israel past, present, and future and saw how their numbers were decimated during the period after 70 A.D. through the Middle Ages. And it's just been in the last hundred years that the population of Jews worldwide has increased uh, despite the tremendous loss during the Holocaust so the result is stated that there will be left few in number in verse 62, that they would be scattered among all the peoples, verse 64, that they would serve idols, verse 64, and that they would find no rest, the wandering Jew, verse 65. So all of that is ultimately fulfilled in the greater diaspora that comes after, after AD 70. Ninth point, the details of how the land will be will be abused are then described in chapter 29. And I'm just going to skip over that. That relates to the land covenant and then how they will um, be disciplined in the land. And then 10th point, when we come to chapter 30, it describes the restoration of Israel from all the peoples. Uh, verse 6 verses are so important. Now it shall come to pass when all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind where? Among all the nations where the Lord God drives you. See, when you're in the United States and when you're in Russia and when you're in Germany and Poland and Brazil and Argentina and China and India and you begin to... Uh, reflect upon how I have judged you and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Now that's not going to occur until the end of the tribulation period. But there's still a vast number of Jews will still be scattered uh, in the world. Then you, you remember and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. From where? From captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, in 538 B.C., when Cyrus gave the mandate to Zerubbabel to, that they, he could take a group of Jews back to the land from, from Babylon, he took 5,000 with him at the most. That's not Jews from, scattered throughout the whole world. Many of the Jews who were in Egypt never returned. They continued to have a large community of Jews in Alexandria. Those were the ones responsible for the translation of the Septuagint. There were also Jewish communities in Rome and in Athens and throughout the uh, Greek Empire and Roman Empire in the area we now know as Turkey up in Cappadocia and Pontus and Bithynia and in Asia and they never went back to to Israel the return in 586 or excuse me in 538 all the way down through the 2nd century BC those the people who came back from the diaspora were a minority just like today the vast majority of Jews worldwide did not return to the land and they did not come back from all the lands they came back primarily from Babylon and so when we read in verse Uh, three, that they, God will gather them from all the nations where God has scattered them. That has never been fulfilled. It's, I think it's beginning to be fulfilled today. We see Jews returning to Israel from all over, but that's an initial regathering in unbelief, and it won't be a gathering, regathering in belief until the end of the tribulation. And that's when verse, um, uh, verse 4 takes place if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you then the Lord your God will bring you to the land where your fathers possessed and you shall possess it this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 13 Matthew 24 when at the return of Jesus he sends out his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth that's when this is, this is fulfilled in relationship to the Jews And the Lord will then circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's the establishment of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. This is what we're about to get into in our study in Hebrews 8 on Thursday night. So that gives us the background of the blessing and the curses that God has promised to Israel. That's the To understand that, is to be able to understand why things happen the way they do in first and second kings. Now the next thing that uh, we have to be aware of in terms of background is the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is outlined by God in 2 Samuel 7:12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7:12 through 16. Now one word of caution when you read through Second Samuel and you look at Second Samuel six where David moves the ark back to Jerusalem and we have this episode where as they're transporting the ark, it's on a carriage with oxen and the oxen steps in a in a chug hole and, and the uh cart uh is off balance and Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize God, as it were. And he is struck dead because he touches the ark. And that's the imagery there is God doesn't need any help from man to keep his balance. He can keep his balance all by himself. Thank you very much. And after that event, David is a little put off. He's a little concerned. But, and, um, but the, the ark then blesses the house of the uh, Gittite. I forget his first name, where it's, where it's placed in Second Samuel 6. And so David comes back and he moves the ark to Jerusalem because of his desire to build a temple there, a permanent house for for God. Second Samuel seven that follows it, logically and theologically, is the recording of God's covenant where He tells David, I, I appreciate the fact that you want to build me a house, but what I'm going to do is build or establish a house. I, dynasty for you David wanted to build a physical house for God God is going to build a spiritual house or dynasty an eternal dynasty for David and he gives him the Davidic covenant while this happens early in 2 Samuel in 2 Samuel 7 I believe it doesn't happen until about 7 years before David actually dies based on a number of passages for example and 1 Corinthians fifteen we we're told that David built houses for himself in the city of God and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Well, we know that David didn't build his palace and he didn't start doing this until towards the end of his reign. Also, we, we know that... Uh, the covenant is given to him after God has defeated all his enemies. In First Samuel, um, Samuel 11, where we have the story of David and Bathsheba, remember David doesn't go off to war when the spring comes as it was the habit of kings because they're still fighting in the north. So if they're still fighting in the north God, in First Samuel 11, then God hasn't defeated all their enemies yet. So the writer of Samuel isn't writing these things from a chronological viewpoint, but from a logical or theological viewpoint. So he places the giving of the Davidic covenant earlier than these other things, but actually the covenant was given after David had committed his his worst sins, which speaks even greater, a greater amount to the grace related to that. Also, we know that when David uh, was preparing for the construction of the temple, he had already entered into a relationship and a trade agreements with Hiram, the king of Tyre. Now, Hiram reigned in Tyre only during the last nine years of David's reign. So all of that suggests that the, the Davidic covenant wasn't given until later in David's life, not, not at the beginning. But it is the giving of the Davidic covenant where David has, uh, God secures the promise for Solomon. Now, we're going to look at a couple of passages. that I think this is very important to understand that, that in First Chronicles 22, when David talks about his desire to build a temple for the Lord, he, got, he recognized that God gave him a promise, told him that Solomon would succeed him long before that, that, actually, that actually happened. So let's go down to uh, look at, turn over to First Kings twenty, First Chronicles rather twenty two, First Chronicles twenty two. So you're just going to learn your Old Testament. You have got Deuteronomy and First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, First Chronicles, or. First Kings, Second Kings, wherever I am. Yeah. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles 22. First Chronicles 22, 6. In the first five verses, David has been talking about his desire to build a house for the Lord. And he knows that God has prevented that, but he wants to prepare things for his son to build the temple. And so we come to verse 6, and he calls for his son Solomon. Now this is long before the events of 1 Kings 1. This is before he's senile. This is before he's... He's uh, uh, the, The events there, this is before the Adonijah conspiracy. He called his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, we know that God said that his son is going to build the house. So David already has made it clear that this throne is going to go to Solomon. That's why when you come into Adonijah, he's really executing a coup. Everybody knows Solomon's the designated heir. God, David has made that clear. Called for his son Solomon, charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house for the name of the Lord God, Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. So look at verse 9. This promise was given before Solomon was born. This promise predated the giving of the Davidic covenant. This This promise is given... Uh, Not long after he marries Bathsheba says, behold, a son shall be future tense, born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him the, the I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So apparently in the chronology, we have the David and Bathsheba incident. Then after that, Bathsheba hasn't gotten pregnant yet with Solomon, but God, as he did with Abraham, gives a foreshadowing of the covenant to David before Bathsheba ever becomes pregnant with Solomon. Then we find out in 1 Kings 1 that David tells Bathsheba that Solomon is going to be his heir. Because she reminds him of that promise. And then, sometime later, God appears to David in in the events described in 2 Samuel 7 and uh, 1 Chronicles 17. And that's when he formally gives the Davidic covenant. So throughout this period, it was clear to David, clear to Bathsheba, clear to Solomon even as he grew older that Solomon was the designated, uh, designated heir. And he would be the one to build a house uh, for God's name. So, some observations. We look at this promise. The promise was given before Solomon was born. And before the the Davidic covenant was given in 2 Samuel 7. That's the first observation. Second, the promise specifies Solomon is the heir. And third, that the promise specifies that Solomon will be the temple. But in verse 13, we're given a condition. This is the fourth observation. One condition is mentioned in verse 13, and that is obedience to God's will. Then... You will prosper, David said to Solomon, if you take care to fulfill the statutes and the judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. So that is terminology that goes right back to Deuteronomy 28. And then fifth, since Solomon and all who followed him failed spiritually, these promises had to point to someone greater than Solomon, someone who could actually be uh, 100% obedient. Now finally what we see here is a promise of God in the Davidic covenant that instead of David building a house for God, God is going to build a house or that is a dynasty for David. Now turn to 2 Samuel 7 we we'll are going to look at the Davidic covenant. Now, what we see here is the Davidic covenant is an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant talked about land, a promise of seed, Zerah in the Hebrew, and blessing. The land was expanded in Deuteronomy 30 in the land covenant. The seed is going to be expanded in the Davidic covenant. And this terminology is picked up in 2 Samuel 7. It's literally the seed of your loins is going to receive the blessing. So the Hebrew, the the, the English uh, doesn't use uh, specific terminology, but the Hebrew does, ties it right back to the seed promise. And then the new covenant will fulfill the uh, blessing aspect. So all of this ties directly back to the Abrahamic covenant and also ties to the Mosaic covenant. So we come to the Davidic covenant. We have scripture the key scripture 2 Samuel 7:11 to 14, 1 Chronicles 17:10 to 14 and Psalm 89. The persons involved are God and David. God is the party of the first part and David is the party of the second part. Now in the Old Testament, there's two types of covenants. One covenant is called a suzerain vassal treaty. The other is called a royal grant. Suzerain is spelled S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N. A A suzerain is just another term for a royal king, and he has these satellite nations or client nations that he's conquered, and he enters into this contract with the uh, vassal nations saying that if you will protect my borders, then I will do all these wonderful things for you. And it was a a vassal treaty was designed to induce obedience of the vassal and to protect the rights of the suzerain. But a royal grant is a grace gift, a reward given by the king to a loyal and faithful servant. The Adamic, the Edenic, the Noahic, and the Abrahamic covenants are all royal grants. They are designed to protect the rights of the servant and to expand them as a reward for faithful obedience. And that's what the Davidic covenant is. And so we'll stop here. We've got one minute left, and there's no way I'll go through eight eight provisions of the uh, Davidic covenant this week. So we'll come back and start there to set that up. Next time we'll go through the Davidic covenant here and that will just about bring us to a start in First Kings. Maybe. That's right. We'll get there. We'll get there. See I only got to page six of my notes tonight and we start verse one on page eight. I only had twenty pages for tonight. I knew I wouldn't cover the whole thing. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we can come together and study these things tonight, that, that even though we're in the church age, we see the patterns of your faithfulness as you dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. And many of these same principles are true. They're universal principles that also apply to us, that as your children, when we are obedient, there is blessing, there is... Uh, encouragement, strengthening from you. But when there's disobedient, like a father disciplines his child, as a writer of Hebrews says, uh, we come under divine discipline. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we will be encouraged that we will have a greater understanding of the importance of obedience in our testimony uh, before the whole world and before the angels. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.